Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Chewing the Gristle, a podcast of doom and destruction. I'm your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, or the Gristle Man, if you will. We're going to have extemporaneous conversations with a variety of very powerful musical friends. We're going to converse about life, liberty, and the pursuit of musical savagery. Is that wrong? I don't think so. So tune in. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of beautiful Louisville, Colorado. Fishman Transducers of the majestic and powerful community known as Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? Folks, hold on to your hats. Our next guest, the mighty Jennifer Batten. You've seen her with Michael Jackson, for pity's sake, on the biggest stages and the biggest tours in the history of Man or Beast. She's a very talented songwriter and solo artist in her own right. You've seen her with Jeff Beck. Great conversation here, ladies and gentlemen, with the mighty Jennifer Batten. Let's go. All right, we're rolling, ladies and gentlemen, here with the mighty and majestic Jennifer Batten. Well, I've had the good pleasure to hang out with and do a little jamming with and do some more hanging out with, a little traveling, a little eating, a little causing trouble. We've done it all. Well, you know, we've had a good time is what we've had on the East Coast, West Coast, the middle of the country. What, what am I missing? I, I think no matter where you go, you have a good time, Greg. You are like a walking good time ball of energy. And I want to I know what you, how that happens. Jesus, well, do you wake I, up I like will this? say every now and again, I my 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 shadow does come out. I was Paul was witness to it yesterday. I have a thing with technology, and the only time that I really get in a bad mood is if I'm trying to utilize a computer or a phone, and I'm trying to do something that I know it's supposed to do, and it yeah. doesn't do it, and then I go from zero to like psychopath. In like three seconds. We must be twins because <laughs> there, I have to tell you, man, I, um, I'll talk about it later, but uh, this guitar symposium I'm doing, Gretchen Men is one of the people that's doing it with me, and she's in a, a Zeppelin tribute band called Zepparella. Yeah. And they have a Patreon thing, and they asked me to join, and when I joined... I had been just pissed off at cables. Like, I have a wall of cables, and I never have the one I need. You of know? course. And so I just have to rip down a whole section of it, throw it on the floor, and troll through it. And I, I just arrived at this thing, and I only saw the band. So I just kept my fume going, like, ah, these damn, ah! I didn't realize there was, like, a whole wall of people I wasn't seeing. <laughs> oh, yes. It can happen. It yeah. happens. Dog it dog. is tech. Man, I, I mean, these days, it, it can be so simple, and it is so simple. I don't record drums here. I only record guitar. There's a maximum of four inputs and usually just one. It works at night, and it doesn't work in the morning. What yeah, the exactly. F? Just, just stuff like that. Like yesterday, it was with the Zoom thing. I've done it a million times, but, but uh, I put in the password. It wasn't working. And then it was like, it was time for the interview and it had gone past the time. And so I'm starting to get stressed out. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'll, and then, and then Paul gets back to me and says, well, the link should work. I'm like, cool. The link will work. 
but my it's on, on my son's computers where we have all the recording equipment. So so then I found his messenger and I was I was trying I, his email wasn't hooked up. So I'm like Dylan, your email. So he comes in here and he's like. You know, I really don't appreciate you using my, or he said something about you, you know, you're on my computer and there's some personal stuff. And I'm like, and then I just lost it. <laughs> and it was like, and then right as the mic went live, I'm like, you ungrateful little. And then Paul, Paul's face just. <laughs> now see, that's the kind of stuff that goes viral. Just being nice 24 seven is boring. That's a snore fest. Now you were officially clickbait. <laughs> oh, good times. Anyway, I don't know how we got there, but that's what these things are all about, just random chats. Now, how's it going out there in Oregon? It looks like an absolute pestilential hellscape. Dude, It it is the apocalypse out here. I mean, one thing after another, COVID, the fires, I, I had to evacuate for three days and I didn't know if I would have a home to come back to. Oh. And uh, I, I got, I went to this, um, there's a chain uh, called Extended Stay America. Right. And I, I went a little over an hour away, so I definitely wasn't out of the smoke by any stretch, but it, it was away from the fire danger. And I had to sneak in two cats and two dogs. How fun was that? Oh. Okay. Now, Extended Stay America is known for having a full kitchen, so you can, you're can you totally self-sufficient. However, right. with COVID, they have removed all of that. So I, I, I was able to oh. nuke a bowl of noodles that I brought, and I had to scoop it with a hotel room key. Oh. <laughs> it's like, that was my shovel. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! So much for the extended stay uh, hospitality. As it oh, were. and it, it smelled like mold. It was uh, just a nasty place. They, they are sorry. They sent me a review. <laughs> but the good news is, you returned to your home and everything was fine. Yeah, I mean, compared to not having a home, there three thousand people have lost their homes up here. It's insane. it's just f so sad, so beyond sad. It's uh. I, I just have to play guitar and get in my happy bubble and just try to maintain my own sanity because that's all I can handle right now. I understand. Now, we were talking a while back when we were actually doing some stuff in the L.A. area. Now, you lived there for years, and then finally you're like, you know what? I got to get out of here. And that's why you went up to Oregon, right? Just it's a Yeah, I was there for 20 years, and when I discovered that was 19 years too many. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, at some point, when your name gets around, all you need is an airport. Right. True. You know, unless you're in the film industry and you actually have to be there with other people. But, you know, once I realized 99 percent of my work was jumping on a plane and going to other countries, I was out right. of there. Right. Although I will say that the restaurants in Southern California are a delight. There's quite there's like anything you want any time of the day or night. True. So that for me is a delicious thing, but not that I would move there for that experience. But let's Oh, look at that dog. Yeah, he's he's a little codependent. We go to Al-Anon together. Oh, <laughs> the puppers. Yeah, he's what's, he's. what's his name? Elvis. <laughs> now, I, I have to explain that, though. Um, what, God, what was it eight, nine years ago now? I, I did a stint with Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas. And I thought, great, I'm going to be here for six months, no plane, no nothing, and what a great time to get a puppy. So, of course, he had to be Elvis because Vegas, right? Of course. <laughs> you know what? I, it's kind of funny because I have a 
where my computer's off here to the right, it's on a little table, which I have an Elvis kind of tablecloth tapestry on. And then I actually have a uh, Elvis clock over here on this wall with the official, you know, taking care of business with the lightning thing. They had it at the resale shop. My my wife was over there because we love to go to the Habitat Humanity resale shop because they're getting all kinds of cool stuff in there. And she sent me this picture of both the Elvis tapestry and the clock. I said, purchase them immediately. Price is not an object. <laughs> <laughs> Take out a mortgage, whatever you have to do. That's a resale shop. So it was like, you know, five bucks. <laughs> and I was knee deep yeah. in Elvis. You know, my the first tour I ever did was with an Elvis impersonator. And it was the weirdest and most wonderful thing ever because the Elvis guy was from Colorado and he had a brother that was a missionary in American Samoa. So that's where we went. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I mean, you can write a book on just that trip because the, oh, sure. the gear, the gear got stuck in Hawaii. Apparently the bill didn't get paid. So we never got our equipment. And my, I remember my speaker had no grill cloth and there was rips in the paper, you know? So it was just like, it was serious <laughs> lo-fi. <laughs> and the promoter ran off with the pre-ticket sales. So we were... I don't know, three or four days in a hotel, and all of a sudden we got kicked out, and we were sleeping on the floor of the local chiefs. <laughs> you know what's funny is that I too had an Elvis impersonator experience when I was in when I was in college. There was a a local guy by the name of Tom Green who was the Elvis impersonator around here, and yeah. So I was home from college during the summer. I was like, I need something to do. I need a job. So I answered this ad, and I went and tried out, and I was in this Elvis band, and we would go around to like malls all over the Midwest and, you know, and he would perform his thing and he'd always wear a, like a gym suit when he wasn't on stage, but then he would turn into, you know, latter years Elvis and have scarves and women would lose their minds, okay. you know, and he'd throw the scarves and the band wasn't half bad, but my favorite thing about this guy, Tom Green is that he would do, in addition to Elvis, he'd do other impressions and he would do an impression. It's an obscure one, but a very satisfying one of William Conrad as Cannon. And so, <laughs> That's and the a, other, <laughs> it's, it's like at, at, at random, he would go into his like, hold it, you cheap punk. <laughs> he would do that. And then the, my favorite one of all time was that he would go into, remember when uh, William Conrad back in the seventies, he was the, he was the uh, ad guy for uh, uh, first alert fire alarms, you know, protect yeah. your home and family with first alert and sometimes we'd go into like burger kings and stuff like that remember when they used to have those little microphones behind the counter we'd be on the road and we'd go Yo. in and this tom green guy would go and just grab it behind the counter and look at everybody and go you're all cheap punks and it is william <laughs> conrad voice he was fantastic but we we had this house gig at somewhere in in iowa at this place called like the red stallion and it was kind of one of those things and this is back when i was partaking in fermented refreshment and i could put it away and by the end of the thing it was kind of like in the booze brothers where we drank more than we made that happened so fantastic the elvis impersonator stories yeah it's like a rite of passage you got to do it <laughs> you know that was Stu Ham's first gig too. No kidding. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably why he has a big tattoo on his forearm that says "No regerts." Nah. <laughs> Leave it to him, that rascal. Yeah, he is a rascal. <laughs> so let's talk about how you ended. Now, where, where are you from originally? You're not from Southern California, right? No, I was born in upstate New York, up in the That's country, in a very teeny tiny town. And my father says his 
version of a midlife crisis was moving to California. You know, it just, ah. he, he was he was the town doctor, and part of our house was the medical office. And at some point, he just got tired of people calling up at, in the dead of winter when there's six feet of snow with a sniffle that wanted a house call. Uh-huh. He <laughs> so said, I'm he, out. He ended up getting a, a job with Kaiser Permanente on the West Coast. And so we went to San Diego, and I just keep going north. I think I might end up in Canada, uh, depending on what's going on in November. But I digress. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe Alaska. I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what, it's uh, it's strange times. You know what? It's times like these that uh, I actually get more filled with gratitude because I think to myself, in an industry like we're in where we actually are dependent on the good graces of the opinions of others, just to, the fact that we have what we have is like a miracle, <laughs> considering how yeah. horrible it might be. You know what I mean? You know what? I, I have a really cool app I suggest to everybody called the Five Minute Journal. And I, I only do one part of it. When, when you open it up, there's a quote of the day that's usually kind of mediocre, but meant to uplift. And then you write down three things you're grateful for. Uh -huh. when, when you start your day like that, it, it reprograms your brain. Um, Absolutely. If you, especially if you normally wake up bitchy like, oh, God, the to-do list. Ah, everybody's after me. Right. Or, or worse yet, going reset. on your going on your phone and going to social media right away when you wake up. Not a good not a good move. Yeah. Or like Twitter and just kind of going, what's the news today? Ah! You know, just that's just not a good way to roll. But yeah, something something meditative first thing in the morning is definitely, as you said, it reprograms your whole attitude as opposed to hearing something that this horrible thing is going on and this person's doing this and yada, yada, yada. And you're like, OK, let's go get them. Let's go get them today. You know, so I agree. Yeah. Always a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I go for long walks in the morning. I go for about a five-mile walk in the morning, and that's that's a good thing. Wow. Yeah. I, I take my dogs out. That That's why he's being super codependent now, because uh, usually I'm taking them out at this point. So he's like, hey. <laughs> What's going on? Looking at his watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit guitar stuff. I mean, when, so when you first started, were you was it already in upstate New York you started to play, or was it more later on when you moved to California? And who were the first people that kind of inspired you to play and that kind of stuff? You know, I started because of two things. And one, probably the, the most motivating one was my sister had a guitar and I didn't and I was jealous. <laughs> you know, I was like, how come Sherry gets everything? Sherry! <laughs> so I asked my parents for the next Christmas if I could get one. And be, between that and the Beatles. The Beatles oh, on TV, go. man. I was I was one of those people, front row center of the black and white TV. And our little town was all about Beatlemania and trading cards and the new record coming out and the Beatle boots. Um, so I got, it was very unusual at that time that my dad got me an electric guitar for my first guitar. Awesome. And, you know, to me, I didn't know the difference between uh, electric models. And to me, it looked like the Beatles. And so... Sure. I have a memory, which is totally probably wrong, but I have a memory of putting it on and just strutting around the neighborhood. Couldn't play a note, but I looked fucking cool. Yeah. Potty mouth, sorry. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Well, that was kind of the, the modus operandi back then, though, wasn't it? It's like, you got to start on an acoustic before you can play electric. It was almost like you had to eat your vegetables before you right. 
you ate your dessert and you're like, I just want to play electric. But it's like, that was the motive. And then if you're serious about it, then you can graduate to the electric. So you, you bypass that whole malarkey. I did. And my dad was a guitar player too. Not, not oh. a professional, but, um, I now have his 175 on the wall nice. and he had an L4 at one point and he, it was such a small town they had a band that would do parties and the, the keyboard player was the head of the department of music at the school. Uh, the drummer was the undertaker. Ah, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> Lived down the road. And, and that's what he really enjoyed just playing guitar on weekends. And the name so, of the so band he, was, I know a guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So he already had an amp that I could use, so there wasn't that extra expense when you buy an electric. And what did he have, pray tell? Uh, it was a, it was a Fender Tweed. I don't remember. It was a smaller one. I like a, like a deluxe, probably. Mm. Yeah, yeah, one twelve, I think. That's it. Probably a deluxe. Doggone it! What a glorious device. Yeah. <laughs> so that's long gone, I suppose. It is. Yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, So you grew up with guitar in the house. Yeah. I grew up with, with a, a musical backdrop. My dad was really into jazz. Okay. Um, he, he was born in Boston and got the East coast culture and just became obsessed with jazz. He probably had a couple thousand LPs oh. when, when CDs came along. And then he was one of these guys that I wish I was more like that, but he was so organized. I mean, his garage looked like a Home Depot, you know, ah. like everything in its place. <laughs> Just like mine. Oh, man. I buy three of everything because I know I'll never be able to find two. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I had a brain fart. What? about his organization. Oh, the CDs. Yeah. Yes. He, he really got into CDs and he had those, um, what do you call it? The, the, the rotating disc things like in a yeah, yeah, box. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he had them all labeled. He's, I, that's one thing after he passed, I still have them here. He's got these notebooks that have the CD covers in them and a number that you could click on the carousel. Oh my Lord. Bless him. Yeah. That's a lot of work, man. I, I can't even manage to get a CD back in the case. It's hopeless. Oh, I know. I'm the same way. So was he? Was there, was there a specific kind of jazz that he gravitated to, or was it just across the board he was into it all? Um, boy. You know, well, okay, for instance, when I was at GIT, I came home at one point, and I asked him who Jim Hall was, and he sent me home with 14 records. <laughs> yeah, so he was he was in deep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say more piano than any other instrument, but he turned me on to Chico Hamilton. He okay. was a big fan of his. He was very prolific. Um, not so much Charlie Parker. That, that, that's just the stuff that comes to mind. And there, there was uh, my mother in this very small town was the head of the arts council. And so w we would bring in, we, like I was part of it when I was eight, right? <laughs> <laughs> we would bring in acts from around the world. And one that kept coming back and would stay at our house because we had a pretty big house was George Morrell. Oh, okay. Yeah. An amazing, beautiful classical guitar player that... The disc I remember is he did a, a version of uh, West Side Story. Okay. 
Yeah, so um, I had a crush on him when I was a, a, a tiny tot. A tiny tot. Yeah. Well, that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's uh, that's like full musical immersion. I mean, my uh, you know, my mom was a great piano player, but she she didn't really play anything. You know, she wasn't like an enthusiast where she listened to a bunch of music. It wasn't until I was much older when she'd be like playing the piano and it would be like around the holidays. And I'd come home from music school and thinking, well, now I'm a snob because I know this and the next thing. And next time I hear mom play, I'm sure it's going to seem infantile, you know. Right. And I hear her start playing. I was like, that shit sounds good. So I was like, and I didn't recognize any of the uh, melodies. And I'm thinking, well, this must be stuff that she learned in like the late thirties or forties, because I mean, she was, you know, she graduated high school in 1945. So I was like, mom, what is that stuff you're playing? She's like, oh, I just make it up as I go along. I'm like, <laughs> so I kind of wow. got a little, uh, it was like, okay. And then uh, my dad, he had like, you know, he was a big, big band fanatic and he used to go and see all the big bands back in the day. But you know, his record collection was, you know, he didn't really, every now and again, he would, uh, you know, throw on a little uh, this, that, and the next thing. But they, I remember they had Trini Lopez records, and I remember looking at the electric guitar like, wow, you know. But it was never, it was never anything like where they were really, you know, into music. Most of the stuff came from my older siblings, you know, because I was the youngest mm. of seven. So my brother had this massive record collection, and I would, you know, listen to all their stuff. But so was I, it? So was that kind of jazz stuff? The stuff you started getting? Or no, you said Beatles. So it was Beatles? So you were kind of rebelling against the jazz stuff, or were you always like, "Well, that stuff's cool too. I think I'll get hip to that as well." Well, I didn't have an attitude about the jazz stuff. It just that was that was the backdrop of growing up. If he was home, that music was on. Yeah, that, that was the first thing he would do when he was done with work. I remember he took. I think it was just me. The other, I had two older sisters that were out of the house by then. But he he took me to go see Miles Davis. Wow! And and I I could be wrong, but I think it was kind of the bitches brew era. Oh, that was yeah, yeah. And and my mother was so pissed off that he wouldn't address the audience that we left. <laughs> <laughs> We're out of here. And I was kind of bummed because I was digging it, you know. Yeah. But and he he would read Downbeat magazine. And a lot of times he would just take a chance on things he read about. And for some reason, Fleetwood Mac was in there. And he immediately ah. gave that to me after he heard it. After one listen. So is this the uh, <laughs> this is the Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac or is it after that? No, uh, Rumors was in there. Oh, okay. Got and it. And Downbeat. What, I don't know what that's about. Clickbait or something? <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah. who knows? He, who turned knows? Me on to, he turned me on to Stanley Clark. Oh, cool. Yeah. He was he was pretty much on the pulse of what was happening so um and he sent me to well i i asked to go to to git and i didn't have the money for people that don't know it's, it's now musicians institute but when i went it was just a guitar school right and and the deal was he would pay for the school if i would teach him when i graduated ah which is you know it's reasonable but damn it was awkward ah. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, I was always telling him, keep your thumb back, keep your thumb back. And he would come every week, and his thumb was like a flagpole on top of the neck. And, it, and you know, <laughs> a month later, I remember I was at his house, and we watched a live George Benson concert. And the whole time, there's flagpoles up above the neck. And <laughs> at that point, I go, you know what? It's whatever works for you. Exactly. Do what you got to do. Yeah. So when did you start developing the, the two-handed technique and, and, and all that kind of stuff? That happened because of GIT, and every month we would get a great seminar. 
Pat Metheny, Leah Rittenauer, Larry Carlton, all the heavyweights that were in town or, or flying through town. Um, just an amazing education of hanging out with those people for a couple hours. And one month, it was Emmett Chapman who invented oh. the Chapman stick. Okay. And at that time, there were 60 students total divided in two classes, and we would come together for the seminar. <clears throat> and after the seminar, I think 59 of us were thinking, meh. We're just trying to get these six strings down with this tuning. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nobody had any interest in, in getting a stick with a whole new tuning and a whole new technique. But it planted a, a seed in Steve Lynch's mind, a fellow student. And I would check in with him. He was in the other class, and he was the, the night janitor also. So he was always, you know, at the end of the day, there was time to go see what he was up to. And I just thought it was the coolest sound ever. And, but during the school year, it was all I could do to just keep up with the curriculum. So I waited till we had graduated. And he played a, a tapping tune that he worked out at graduation. And I, I wrote to him and I said, man, can you send me demos of stuff you're working on? And he did. And I tried to figure it out. And it sucked. And I was using one finger and, you know, ended up with a blister on the finger. So... At that point, I had moved back to San Diego, and he was in L.A., and I, I drove up for a lesson so I could see it face-to-face, -face. and he had a very, uh, very clear way to incorporate two hands, and that's all I needed. That, that just set me off on a path of adventure. Yes. So that, that's, that was it. And, and then, so then I ended up with blisters on all four fingers, you know, because I did way too much in the beginning. <laughs> and you've had calluses there ever since as a result, I would imagine. Yeah. Actually, you know what? It's funny. I'm just trying to get them back because I haven't been doing it that much. And I decided that there was a thing that aired last night that, that's a benefit for live crews. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of people sent in videos. And I decided to do Giant Steps, which is on my first record. It was a tapping thing that I worked out. And I thought, yeah, that would be a good thing. Just blast. It's, it's like a minute and a half. And then I started working on it and going, oh, boy, I, this is painful. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and I actually had to back down the tempo. And I go, how... How was I a whippersnapper with that kind of speed? You know, this I don't know, 20 years ago now maybe is when I recorded it. So now I want to get it back because that's, that's one of the things that I'm teaching uh, at this symposium thing that I'm doing. So... Oh, that's coming up, or is it something that's yeah. going? On? Okay, got you. Yeah, I, I was I was doing a, a plug hint, but I didn't want to blast in. <laughs> no, that's all right. Fear not. Fear not. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of Guitar Cloud Symposium, <laughs> perfect. <dot> com. <laughs> I love it. You know, so when you so when you were working on this this type of stuff, so you're at GIT. What what was kind of like your uh, what you foresaw as your career path at that point? Did you not care? You just wanted to learn stuff, and whatever happened happened. Or do you're like, I want to be a uh, I want to be a side person in a big band, or I want to have my own band, or I want to be a session person, or you're like, whatever happens happens. I wanted to be Pat Martino. Got it. I was a total jazz head. And uh, sold a bunch of my rock records, which a lot of people do. And then a couple of years later, they go, oh, man. 
Well, GIT was a lot different back then. Am I right? Yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it, it was very jazz-oriented. Two of the teachers were bebop guys, Joe DiOrio and Ron Eshte, and right. Don Mock was the fusion guy that was into McLaughlin and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, you know, there was three teachers total and 60 students total. So it was – and I'm really glad that I went at that time to – you know, there, there's more – community with the teachers and instead sure. of you know now there's thousands of people that go there and i don't even know most of the teachers but um yeah I, it was the era of al Miola and george benson and if fusion was just getting off the ground really with lee right. rettenauer's first records and larry carlton larry carlton and yeah Stern and then uh schofield and the gang yeah, so I, I was really into that. The the first band I was ever in was a fusion band, making next to no money, but I was thrilled to be on stage playing George Duke and whatever didn't have too many chords that was kind of jazzy. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point were you like, I'm I'm totally making a living just playing music what at what point did that start and what what was the turning point that kind of made that all transpire you know what i i tortured my mother one night and asked her to come into my room because i i wrote a song and i wanted the ambience to be just slamming so i turned out the lights and i played for her and it was probably just awful and but she was very kind about it and i announced that i wanted to be a professional guitar player when i was 12 years old and i'll always remember that because she said well now, honey, that's a very competitive business. Ah. And when you're 12 years old, that means nothing. Sure, it's of course. like, that's what I want to do. What's the big deal? <laughs> you know, right. I'll, I'll carve my way. And there have been many times since I go, man, I should have listened to her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you never know what awaits. <laughs> she, actually, she was downplaying it by saying it's a very competitive business. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. She was sugarcoating it. Yeah. At that point, not there's other words I would use other than competitive. I would think, uh, but yeah. anyway, but bless her. <laughs> well, I, th I think uh, I remember at one point we were supposed to fill out a paper in high school of our top choices of careers, and forestry was in one of those. I was really into backpacking when I was a teenager, but I don't know. I just kept taking lessons and was into music. So it just uh, lasted somehow. And then honestly, I went, uh, I saw an ad in Guitar Player Magazine for a guitar symposium that GIT was putting on because I was in the third class they ever had. Oh, they, interesting. Were, they were just trying to get the word out because it was just a baby <clears throat> school. And I went to the symposium, which was over a weekend. Most of the stuff was way over my head. And I, by the end of the thing, I took a test to get into the school and failed miserably because although I had been taking lessons all these years, my parents are just shelling out money, <laughs> you know, right. every week, every month. I learned a bunch of tunes, a bunch of techniques. I knew my pentatonic scales, but I didn't know a chord scale. I didn't know diatonic scales, harmonic minor, uh, you know, the building blocks. Right. So he sent me back home to San Diego and I studied with a great jazz player named Peter Sprague for six months and that guy kicked my ass you know I, I was really into it I was I don't know, practicing three or four hours a day at that point and six months later I, I had enough together that I was able to get into the school but 
I think I was the only student that had never played a gig before. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it was, it was a whole new world for me. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. All right, so let's let's just say, okay, now you're going you're going to GIT, you're doing the thing. At what happens between then and you touring the world with Michael Jackson? What had transpired between <laughs> in that period of time? It's kind of funny how your mind works because I remember announcing at GIT graduation that I would have a solo record within a year. Well, it was 10. That <laughs> 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 was a, kind of in a little time warp in my brain. Yes. Um, let's see. Well, I, I played I played in this fusion band I was talking about in San Diego. And at one point, we became a cover band and did weddings. And it was a really great way to cut my teeth on stage and get used to playing in front of people. Um, and everybody was saying, man, if you want to make it in music, you got to go to L.A. And I had spent enough time in L.A. to think, oh, really? Don't I have to? <laughs> <laughs> so eventually I bit the bullet. And, well, the the bass player in this band, uh, that was my first band, he was from L.A. And he bailed from San Diego and wanted to go back to L.A. And it seemed like almost immediately he got a gig with Johnny Rotten. Ah. When he started the Public Image Band, yes. and the rest of the band was going, man, all you have to do is move move to L.A. and you get in a big band and tour. So one by one, we trotted up, and I, I slept in his garage for about three months before I got my own apartment, um, and and just started looking at ads and auditioning. And I was in five different bands by the time the Jackson thing came along, just all original bands that would play once or twice a month for the most part. Um, and then I, I remember I went, when you move from San Diego to LA, obviously the LA musicians union is really strong and there, there's a lot of money in it. So they want to make sure that you're not from some other state Sure. And and start collecting benefits from them. So they had a thing at the time where you had to come in every Monday and sign in a book to prove that you lived there. So that was like for two months. And every Monday I would go there and I would look at the available gigs. And it was weddings and bar mitzvahs and all these lame ass right. gigs that I had no interest in because I wanted to be in a big, cool band. And finally, I asked one of the guys, you know, where are the cool gigs at? And he kind of laughed and said, it's it's word of mouth you know right. people have friends that know friends that know friends and it was see i moved up in 84 and in 87 michael jackson was about to launch the bad tour and they they auditioned a bunch of people in la and uh, i was lucky enough to hear about the auditions one of the guys one of his guys called musicians institute who at that time uh, had started a referral service so I was lucky enough to get the call. I took about, I don't know, I, I canceled all my work just to work on tunes and be ready for the audition. And it was just kind of bizarre because I went in and there was no band. 
And I ended up, the only thing I played that was Michael's was the Beat It solo, because I had played that in the band in San Diego when we were doing covers. Because I thought he might find that useful. And then right. that bought me a house. Ah. <laughs> useful all around. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> so that must have been, well, transformative on oh, many big time. levels. Big time. You know, it's it's kind of funny when you when you say that, it triggers a memory of my very first interview after I had, well, it was probably my first interview ever, but especially after I had gotten the, the gig. And, you know, you, you grow up reading these guitar magazines and you read interviews by other people. And it's probably a, a standard thing that if you want to be a pro, that in your mind you have these fantasy interviews. Well, what if they were asking me that question, right? Right, right. And I, I had done that just as a normal thing all of a sudden i'm in my first interview it's la right it doesn't get cold in la very often and my teeth were chattering i was so nervous ah. <laughs> and i couldn't control it and and the guy goes are you cold do we need to turn up the heat and i'm like you don't even understand what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> i can dig it i can dig that well how about the first gigs you did that might that must have been relatively terrifying as well right when you're on stage with michael jackson you're like okay there's there's that guy i'm in front of what 20 30,000 people 50 60 or 50 60 <laughs> as the case may be if not more so that must have just been or were you guys so well rehearsed by the time you went on the road that you didn't even think about it we were so well rehearsed and that that's one of the biggest lessons in life because prior to that Especially in my cover band, we would we would call each other on phone and say, "Let's let's do two new songs Friday night." We'd get together Friday afternoon, go over them and play them that night. And when you don't have the repetitions with the band, no matter how much work you do at home, it's it's kind of nerve wracking. Sure. All of a yep. sudden, you're in front of a crowd. You don't know how the cortisol is running through your brain, and worried about remembering that part in the bridge and. You know, you're not getting the cues that were on the record because the band sucked and didn't learn it right. You know, <laughs> so anything could happen, and many things did happen. With Michael, man, we rehearsed so much. We rehearsed as a band, only the band in one room for a month. Dancers ah. in another, singers in another, and then we came together in a giant soundstage where they could do all the special effects and pyro and all that stuff and do the staging and have everybody together with Michael. And that was another month. Okay. And it was at least five days a week, sometimes more. Before we left for Japan, we were doing an entire two and a half hour show twice a day. So um, that's great. Well, yeah, that'll definitely, uh, that'll definitely mitigate any kind of random <laughs> things that slips of mind and things of this nature. It's embedded in the brain at that particular point. So you're, is it hard to keep it fresh at that point, or is it just you're just probably not? But I mean, it's just got to be coming from. Yeah, we rehearsed it a couple times with the band, and then we go out and play it, and it's just kind of winking a nod to like everything has got to be just so. What was that experience like in terms of adjusting I, I, to that new paradigm, as they say? I enjoyed the hell out of it. I really did. I mean, even though I got a few solos, which was great, it was it was a groove band. Okay. You know, in fact, I remember uh, Greg Fillingaines was the musical director, and he 
he always joined a little late. I think it was a last-minute negotiation kind of thing. <laughs> so okay. uh, when we first started the Bad Tour rehearsals, Ricky Lawson, the drummer, was was doing the MD kind of stuff. And I would stay up till 3 in the morning just making sure I had the stuff down. I had little cheat sheets on cards because I, I didn't want anything to go wrong. I wanted to do sure. my very best. Um, and at one point where I th- – where I felt after Greg had joined, we had done plenty of repetitions on the entire set. I th- I was feeling a little bit cocky, like I got this right. I'm wow. studying jazz, and this is just Michael Jackson music. And then Greg goes, "Okay, we're doing pretty good here. Now let's focus on groove." And I just remember that moment, like, "Oh shit, am I not grooving?" <laughs> you, know, ah. <laughs> you know, I always take criticism like that, that just went out to the whole band r- right to myself. I'm going sure. to. So um, I tell you what, it, it's funny as a musician, when you're improving day by day, you don't really realize it. If you listen to a tape of yourself five, ten years back, you go, oh, yeah, I sucked back then. I'm way better now. Um I, so I did a year and a half with these guys. I mean, th- th- some of the greatest players ever. Ricky Lawson, played Lionel Richie, Whitney Houston. I mean, he was like number one call. And right. Greg Phil and Gaines is on every record you own kind right. of stuff. Um, and I remember playing with a band after the whole tour was over, going back to one of my old bands. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, how come you guys suck now? Because <laughs> 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 my pocket had improved so much. Being with that level of players, it, it just launched me to a, another universe. I understand. It, really supreme schooling. And all the guys were so wonderful. I, it's, you know, it's something tragic happened this week. The other guitar player in the Bad Tour passed away. Oh. So I'm, I'm kind of reeling from that. Um, he and I were newbies to the big scene. You know, so it was it was really nice that we could kind of console each other. Like, how the fuck do we get here? You know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm yeah, sorry he, to hear that. That's a drag. I know he will be sorely missed. He was such a great, wonderful person, wonderful player, and, and the perfect. You know, all of us stay in touch. It was such a historical thing, the sure, biggest absolutely. tour on earth. You know, and and everybody, it was good people. Right. You know, there was no stinkers that you wanted to stay away from, which you know, when you throw players in a bowl, right. you just don't know how personalities are going to go. And sometimes Absolutely. it is not good. So you lucked out with that. It was just a good, a good gang all around. Indeed. And we, we stay in touch. Excellent. Well, I would, uh, I would love to hear how in comparison, not, not to compare the two, but just the differences in terms of approach and, uh, from rehearsing to your level of freedom when you went to play with Jeffrey Beckery in terms of, I mean, that's, I mean, of course he's, you know, you talk to any guitar player in whatever idiom and probably the the one guy that everyone uniformly just goes, the master is is Jeff Beck. So describe for a little bit, how how did you make that connection and how did it all kind of come together and what was it like? And not that, in 25,000 words or less. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always, I like to joke and tell people I stalked him when really, okay, here, here's the story. When we were on the bad tour, Rory Kaplan, who was a keyboard player on uh, 
one of three keyboard players on that tour. There was a whole lot of layers of keys. He had done some teching work with Jan Hammer and Jeff when they were out together. Uh-huh. And so he knew I was a Jeff Beck freak. I had learned every solo on Blow by Blow and Wired. And way back in the day, before tributes were a thing, I wanted to do a Jeff Beck tribute. And after I put out all the work, then I freaked and thought, oh, God, what if I lose it during one of the solos and lose my place? And I just got cold feet and never did anything with it. Um, so anyway, he he knew that I was really into Jeff's music. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know him. I'll, I'll hook you up. And the bastard never did. <laughs> That's so-, so, so I was really disappointed. And when the Dangerous Tour came up in 92, I go, okay. I know we're going to England, and I know he lives on that island somewhere. Right. So it was my mission of the whole tour to meet him and get an autograph. And so after every show, there was always Sony and Epic reps backstage. And I would say, hey, anybody know Jeff? Anybody got a connection to him? I want to invite him to a show. And eventually somebody came through and invited him to – we were playing at Wembley Stadium. Two opening acts went on. And then Michael canceled the show. Oh. Yeah, I know. I was so distraught. I was so excited to meet him. And if you can picture this, 80,000 people pissed off, leaving the stadium, children crying. People had flown in from other oh. countries. You know, it was it was a horrifying mess. Um and so they snuck the band into a bus and closed the curtains so there wouldn't be a riot, like somebody being so pissed off they knock over the bus or something. I'm going, I know Jeff Beck's in the VIP tent, and I'm not going anywhere. So people are coming out, and I'm going across them with my hair three feet high, like it couldn't be anybody but me, right? Right. <laughs> and I finally get to the VIP tent, and he wasn't there. And it turns turns out he had been turned away at the gate because he was flying in last minute. And so I called him up and said, man, I don't know when or if they're going to make up the show, but can I meet you anyway? And he said, sure. And he at that time, he was recording his rockabilly record with the Newtown Playboys. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so I went to the studio and dig this. I had one of those old school video cameras. And during a break, I asked him to play Blue Wind. And I had the video camera there battery dies i get like Ah. five seconds and i go oh hold on i brought a spare battery i put in the spare battery another five seconds dead Ah. (laughs) (laughs) but i'll tell you man in those five seconds watching the nuance of him playing the main riff right it it was it's like the sky opened up even though i was playing the same notes i wasn't bending them like he was doing Uh and it it, man it just knocked my socks off so i got my autograph at that time my first record had come out and also i had done a video for flight of the bumblebee that they were playing on the mtv's headbangers ball in england at that point and they they gave i did an interview with them so they had a a VHS that was PAL format, so I, I couldn't use it at home. They gave it to me that had the video and the interview, so I gave the CD. These were my offerings, right? <laughs> I, I gave it to him and then got my autograph, and I thought I'd never see him again. And I, I'll back up a little bit, too, because when I met him, thankfully, two of my friends were with me, because although I knew his music so well, I didn't know anything about him as a person. It's uh-huh. only what you could read in magazines. You know, it wasn't like the internet today. The, those kids, you know. Right. <laughs> so, so it was really awkward. I, 
you know, you meet somebody that you think they're the greatest person in the world, but what the hell do you say? So right. thankfully, I had friends that, that helped keep the conversation going. So I thought I'd never see him again. I thought he'd probably not listen to the CD because I know I get inundated with CDs sure. and it's just too much. Right. Um, plus, I already heard Steve Vai. You know, I don't need 45 copies of them. <laughs> so it's miracle of all miracles. Um, a couple months later, he called me up and said, I finally had a chance to listen to your record properly. And I, I would give anything to have a recording of that call because he was just compliments right and left. And my head was just going, whoa. Ah, <laughs> perfect. And he said, let's do a record together. And of course, I just peed myself. Um, and I remember as, as soon as as soon as we hung up, I started thinking, "Oh man, I'm a fraud." He has no idea how many times I had to punch that one line in that one song. You know, <laughs> like ah. all this insecurity starts going up. That that big head just deflated in a heartbeat. Um, and it was actually five years before it happened. He had gone, he did two tours in the meantime. One was a double headliner with um, Santana. And every time I saw him, he would say, we're going to do this thing. And I thought, yeah, I, I know what it's like to be inspired in the moment. And, you know, you move on, other things get in the way. And right. at that point, I really didn't think it would happen. And he called up five years later and said, I've got a tour of Italy. Let's go. And he had never played with me before. At that point, he was going on the strength of two records that I had out, but still not playing together. I thought he was nuts. And so I had a, a session in Italy, and I flew over, and I booked myself to London, and I learned most of the Guitar Shop record. And I forced an audition on myself in his presence just to make sure he wasn't out of his mind. Right. <laughs> you know what <laughs> And that that evening, his uh, girlfriend, now wife, broke out the whiskey about midnight. And let me just say, I had an early flight, and, and it wasn't pretty. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we we ended up playing for three years and two records, and my ears are severely damaged. Uh, but <laughs> you know, it was it was a good time. There, there was a bottle of champagne waiting for us at the end of every show, and uh, a lot of laughs. It was, it was pretty wonderful. Re really great to get to know him, and spending weeks and weeks on a bus with him, listening to music and hearing his opinions of things was really enlightening. Interesting. I mean, he, he'd say stuff like, you know, as long as the drums are really grooving, you don't need much else. Right. You know, that's the Zen thing where the rest of us are going, here's a guitar record. Here's everything I know. And here's another record with everything I know. <laughs> you right. know, I mean, that's the standard thing of the 80s. Right. Um, yeah, it was super, super inspiring. And I remember many times being in the studio where I was thinking, man, you don't need me on a Jeff Beck record. Right. You don't need another guitar player. And I didn't play that much, but. There were times where I was in the studio and I was thinking, man, why am I here? Although I loved the process and to see what he was going through and the, the back and forth banter with the producer. And there was always, every single day, there was some gem of wisdom that would come out of his mouth. I go, ah, that, that's the gem for the day. Uh-huh. Yeah. Awesome.
Now you recently did, he did that retrospective not too long ago, right? And you, and you did that with him and was at the Hollywood bowl or something like that? That, you know what? That's goofy. That didn't happen. He called me to, he called me to do it. And then he realized he asked for too many special guests and with buddy guy opening, there wasn't going to be time. Oh, okay. Oh, that that was slightly devastating because I I had a bunch of friends flying in to see it, and it was just a big clusterfuck that didn't happen. So the last time I played with him was uh, got 20 years ago, and that was a career retrospective where he had had the guitar shop guys, Terry Bozio and Tony Hymas, did uh, three or four songs and just different chunks of uh, eras of his music. and he had Paul Rogers sing, which was – I'm a huge fan of that man. Sure, absolutely. So that was a gas. And he had John McLaughlin. You know, it was, it was just a, a really great way to go out. Right. In fact, I remember I just flashed on um, – we were doing Scatterbrain, which is in 9-8. Right. And you figure John, he d- never plays in 4-4. Of course, he's going to – be into this and i guess jeff didn't tell him in advance which is you know when you got a complex tune you kind of want to let people know sure and john we were trying to show him the line and he knew like three other songs in nine eight so he he picked one that would fit on top of it (laughs) perfect yeah (laughs) oh man that's that's wild it's wild stuff. I, I saw the show a couple times. I saw it in Milwaukee. Uh, you guys played at the, um, which I'm sure you remember vividly. Yeah. Uh, it was at the Eagles Ballroom, as a matter of fact. And uh, I actually got to go backstage. But the first time oh. we actually met was at the, um, I played at the Wild Horse Saloon with my band for a Fender thing. Yes. And uh, I'll never forget because it was nerve wracking for me because it was the first time our band had actually played in a place where like, you know, the during the summer Nam thing and it's the big Fender event and these other people are on the bill and all this other kind of stuff. And everyone was kind of the VIP section was in the balcony up above. So you get done playing. You're like, was it good? You know, kind of as you were saying, you're, you're always self-critical. Was that any good? I don't know. It felt okay, but maybe that wasn't so hot. And I think the first person I, that said anything nice to me was you. As I was walking up the stairs, you're like, that rocked. And I was like, yes, there is a God. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, dude, I mean, that was what, 20, 25 years ago or something. Yeah. And I, I still ago. remember the energy from that, from your set was just mind boggling. And then I saw you again, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago in some European festival that was such a hair fest. Like everybody was shred, 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 shred. Yeah. You come out and do a Johnny Cash thing or something. <laughs> and it was, it was like the waters parted and I was going, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> giving us an ear break. <laughs> that was funny that thing i still tell that story that was at this uh it was in bologna and they had ah. that uh they had that universal rhythm section greg bisnett was playing drums and murray with a bass player who played on a, lot, a bunch of that jeff beck stuff uh i can't remember his name though i'm spacing yeah. um but there was it, it's like Bunch of good different guitar, and we had to pick out like three, like two cover tunes. I think that was the gist that all these guitar players were coming in to play two cover tunes, and Ingve was like the 
the uh, headliner, I guess. And so he came in later to do the sound check, and he didn't realize that all these other guitar players were on the bill. So everyone had their their pedal boards out. Here, pedal board here, pedal board there. He comes in, and <laughs> as the story goes, and he sees all these these pedal boards. He goes, what is the meaning of this? <laughs> and they said, well, Ingve, you know, there's all these guitar players on the bill and everyone's coming out to do a couple songs and these are their pedal boards. He goes, remove them at once. And so they, <laughs> <laughs> they had to remove all the different, but that's one of my favorite lines to say, like, remove them at once. That's hilarious. Bless you know, heart. I remember that so well because I was on his side of the stage when he was warming up and he was downing red bulls like they were shooters he was just like Psh. and i mean you know how your memory fades over time and other things take over but to me it was just like king henry the eighth taking turkey bones and throwing them over his shoulder <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny too because then the 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 fender folks who, you know, were the reason why we were, why I was there with my guys. And then the reason why Ingve was there because Fender had sponsored, because there was also some kind of a, kind of a mini Nam show going on, I think at the same time, a mm. Dizma or whatever they called it over there. So, but I remember we had like a dinner the next night and it was um, a bunch of different people. Seymour Duncan was over, you know, we were over some other people and Ingve was there. And, and then all the people from this distribution company. So we're all at this nice restaurant, we're eating. And all of a sudden Ingve gets up and basically says, Hey, thank you all for coming to, you know, have dinner with me. It was great. And everyone's looking around like, what's up with it? Because he thought it was a private party for him. And it, and it, but he was, so he was making an announcement before he left. And it was, it was, it was absolutely glorious. There, there are stories that follow him around the planet. Yeah. He's like a walking storybook in the works. Yeah. You know, I, it, but always, uh, always interesting and always humor. Yes. There's always humor, regardless of the pageantry. There's always humor. Yes. In, intended or not. <laughs> Which is the way life should be as far as I'm concerned. So oh, God. What are you up to coming up in the next, uh, you know, obviously everyone's on lockdown. No one's flying anywhere. Everything's been canceled from a uh, uh, actual literal uh, physical point of view. But I would imagine you, like so many others, have figured out ways to do things in a virtual realm. Uh, such as this guitar, the, the shirt you're wearing, I would imagine, is indicative of yeah. these kind of activities. So what's yeah, up, what's yeah. all happening in the next few months here for you? You know, when lockdown first happened, I basically went in the corner and sucked my thumb for three months. I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to pay these bills? Um, and then I, I had a, a download <laughs> uh, several months ago. Well, I guess late spring of um, – I, I did – I put together a seminar – five, six, seven years ago that I took around America called um, Self-Empowerment for the Modern Musician. And it kind of came out of doing Skype lessons with people. And I was always so shocked when people didn't know things that I thought they should know, uh, like, like helpful apps and just all kinds of stuff. So I wanted to put together a seminar that dealt with everything. And I based it on TED Talks in that TED Talks are... 20 concise minutes, everything you have, there's no fluff. It's just exactly what you need to get out there. And then I would move on to the next subject. And it was four hours long, which was kind of a marathon. So this is kind of 2.0 where I've got, I'm always going to have four instructors, which is really cool. And the way I have it designed is 
we each do six subjects over the weekend. The The Friday night is an orientation, Q&A, getting to know the students. Um, and then Saturday and Sunday is all the content. So each teacher does three segments of 20 completely different subjects uh, and then a half hour Q&A and then the next one takes over. So in four days they get 24 subjects in 18 hours. Um, and I, I thought it was going to be the same people for quite a while. Uh, Neely Brosh was one of the first ones. Now she's off on a recording project. So I've replaced her with Angela Petrilli, who's got almost 100,000 Instagram followers. The kids yes. these days. It's yes, crazy. these damn kids. Yeah, and she's really into groove, and she's going to do a thing on uh, slide guitar, which we did not have last time. Oh, cool. So it's kind of cool to bring in different people and see what they have to offer. And it inspires all of us, too. We're all watching each other's classes. And then on the Monday night, uh, there's sponsor giveaways. Last time we gave a, a Luna guitar away and Thomas Blug's Amp One. Okay, yeah, yeah. Just, just a bunch of fun. And I, I will admit, I drank an entire bottle of champagne by myself and had a mighty good time. Uh, <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, we'll have a special guest. In fact, you should join us one time. This, oh, I'd love to. Yeah, you would be a hoot. This this next one is coming up October 16 to 19. We got Andy Timmons joining us. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So I toured with him and, and Uli Roth a few years ago. With a I remember we talked. I was just with Andy down in um, at that guitar, uh, Woodshed Guitar Experience down in Tennessee a couple of weeks ago. Ah, okay. Him and I and Mark Letiri had to share a, a house together. And so at the ah. at the end of the day, we would get together and regale each other with uh, with different tales. And and uh, we we talked about a mutual acquaintance of all of ours. Who shall remain nameless for the nameless for the purpose of this particular thing? But we had uh, a humorous exchange about that uh, about that situation. I think we've <laughs> talked about it before too. But we'll uh, that's that's for off camera activities. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah, you got to pay extra for that. That's right. That's the secret <laughs> and, content. And the the first guest we had in August with, uh, during the launch was Scott Henderson. Oh, excellent! That was a hoot too. Because I Weather Report is my favorite band of all time, you know, and he played with Joe Zawinul. So it was, it's super fun, you know, and it, it's something that most people around the world won't get one-on-one -on -one time with somebody like that. So sure. it's, it's kind of cool. We had this, this poor girl from New Zealand. She's coming back the second round It's crazy. The classes start at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, just so we can get people from Europe that won't be too late. She had to start at four o'clock in the morning in New Zealand. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> so anyway, it's called guitarcloudsymposium.com. Registration awesome. is open. Like and we're going to do it six times a year, every other month. And actually, I'm uh, jumping the gun a little bit because I'm going to announce at the end of this, that we're also on the off months, we're going to do a thing called Deep Dives. So instead of doing, you know, six 20-minute subjects, we're, we're going to – it's not settled yet. We're either going to dive deep into one subject or two each and take it, take it a little further. And one of the, like one of the ones I'm really passionate about is um, the whammy bar and the whammy pedal. I, I combine them both. I like it. So I do a lot of demos and talk about the nuances of trying to make the guitar more vocal. Uh, lately, I've been referring to the whammy bar as Mr. Wiggles. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> My friend calls it a possum, Peter. <laughs>
Good, clean fun. Yeah. Lord have mercy. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for spending some time with us and uh, having this glorious conversation. It was a lot of fun, and it's great to hear the stories. It's just wild. It's been a, 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 of course, we've done a bunch of different stuff together when we've done our fishman things. Hopefully, we'll do some of that stuff in the future. But, uh, and I've heard some of the stories, but not all of them. So it's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm sure that the people listening in have enjoyed it immensely as well. So, and by all means, anytime you want to do any of those things, I'd be more than willing. And uh, I'm always ready to have a little fun and cause some trouble. Good. I, I definitely will tap you. Um, this has been great. I feel like I motor mouths way too much. It's oh, no, no. This right has been perfect. Coffee. I loved it. I loved it. It's just I like just the spontaneous conversation. Anything comes up, we just kind of go with it. And it was perfect. So thank you very much. Well, I'll leave with that then. I like it. <laughs> perfect All right, Deborah, great to see you. You stay safe out there now, doggone it. In Oregon, that's yeah. crazy times. You got it. Thanks. All right, have a good one. Thanks again. Adios. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon. 